What I'm going to try to do in this presentation, you know, it says evidence for evolution and why it matters for Catholics. So uh, I don't want to spend an hour going over different uh, scientific evidence for evolution, but I, I do want to hit on that. But I'm going to sort of reverse it, the, the talk from the title. And first, to talk why it matters uh, for Catholics to grapple with the evidence for evolution and to examine it uh, critically. Um, and then go into, I think, three pieces uh, of evidence that I think uh, are interesting, um, uh, the things that have sort of emerged recently uh, in evolutionary uh, research uh, that uh, sort of dispel some uh, concerns that a lot of uh, Catholics or, or Christians often have um, or, or with evolution or critiques that they might have and, 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 and try to address those. So, um, so you know, there is a natural synergy that exists between uh, a Catholic worldview and scientific discovery, right? So from a Catholic perspective, we see the world as the handiwork of God who is reason itself, and the rational order and structure inherent in creation point towards its ultimate source in God. That's a distinctly Catholic uh, notion, right? And the church has long maintained that reading the book of creation through an investigation of the natural world can, can reveal something about the creator, just like uh, examining a work of art can reveal something about the artist and the artist's intentions and, and, and that, right? Uh, likewise, the fact that humans are made in the image and likeness of God, that we share in that rationality, actually gives us hope uh, that we can uh, you know, comprehend some of the mysteries of this created world, you know, uh, that, that we may not fully understand, just like we don't fully understand God, but we can penetrate into and understand and draw something from our scientific discovery. And so that, it's this, that synergy that, that lies behind the church's longstanding support of scientific discovery. Right? Um, and you know, Stephen Barr, who introduced me, has an excellent talk uh, that he, he, he gives, uh, you know, pointing out the, the support the church has had over millennia of, of science and, and talking about different Catholic, uh, practicing Catholics who are influential sciences over the years. And on the uh, Society of Catholic Sciences website, there's a list of uh, over 80 of these uh, important scientists, uh, some of whom were, were Catholic priests. Now, despite this, there is this powerful counter-narrative claim, and, and uh, Dr. Barr mentioned that in, in the introductory remarks to, to, to the conference here, uh, that the truths of science in some way uh, conflict with the truths of faith, that scientific discovery is gradually upending um, and uh, uh, has a stranglehold on Catholic beliefs and superstition. It's upending that, that stranglehold, you know, that Catholic beliefs and superstition once had on the popular imagination, and it's sort of chipping away at that, right? Um, and nowhere, I think, is this more evident in the popular culture than in evolutionary biology, right? There's some understanding that as we understand more about evolution, um, that, uh, you know, according to many popularizers, that human beings are no longer this special thing made in the image and likeness of God. We're just some random uh, lucky cosmic winner of an uh, evolutionary accident, a twig on, on some distant branch of the evolutionary tree. Now, this this view holds such force in the popular culture, right, that in his inaugural pontifical homily, Pope Benedict actually mentions evolution. He says, we are not some causal and meaningless product of evolution. Each of us is the result of a thought of God. Each of us is willed, each of us is loved, each of us is necessary. 
Now, there's a danger, I think, um, and of, of taking this quote out of context rather than putting it in the context of all that Benedict has said. Because uh, if you look at the statement, it almost seems that there's this either or thing here, right? There's, we're, we're a causal meaningless product or we're the result of the mind of God. But to read it in such a way is really to do violence to how Benedict sees evolution um, and, and creation, right? Uh, rather, you know, what Benedict was concerned about here in this statement, he's concerned about the implications of the atheistic philosophies that are inspired by evolutionary theory. Philosophies that attempt to reduce the human person to nothing more than this causal, meaningless product of evolution, right? And this is something that, uh, that, that uh, Benedict shares, a concern he shares with Pontus before and Pontus after him. You see this in the writings of John Paul II and so forth. Uh, when it comes to the science of evolution though, Benedict explicitly does not view this as inherently incompatible with the Catholic faith. Right? And this is uh, uh, one of my favorite quotes from Benedict. Uh, it, it, it comes from a series of homilies he did before his pope in the 1980s. And this is a, a, a small book. Uh, uh, entitled, In the Beginning, uh, the Meaning of Genesis. And he says, we cannot say creation or evolution as much as these things correspond to two different realities. And he refers to the Genesis creation account does not in fact explain how human persons come to be, but rather what they are, right? What does it mean to be human, to be made in the image and likeness of God, right? And vice versa, the theory of evolution seeks to understand and describe biological development, scientific development physical body of, of man. To that extent, we are faced here with two complementary rather than mutually exclusive realities. Right? So for Be Benedict, like an investigation of the biological connection that man might have with the other animals, with the other primates in particular, in no way diminishes what man is. Uh, likewise, the fact that uh, humans are the only earth creature that's fashioned in the divine image, you know, we're infused with the gift of reason, such that we can uh, discern the good and order in creation. Um, he says that can enlighten and guide our scientific studies regarding the emergence of man. This, this, this synergy there, that I think it's at the heart of that quote, is something that we see in the catechism of the Catholic Church about how our human understanding is useful to, to pull out useful things from and meaning from our study of creation, right? So the catechism says our human understanding which shares in the light of divine intellect, can understand what God tells us by means of his creation, right? So what, what is God telling us by means of creation? It requires work to understand and to, to, to discern what is, how, how does creation work? How does it operate, right? Though not without great effort, right? It's not an easy thing. You know, you see millennia of, of, of scientists trying to understand what is going on in, in creation. How do organisms behave? What causes that behavior? What, what um, uh, allows particles to do what they do? Well, forces of, of planets from, from, the, the, from the smallest scale to the largest scale. And then also he says, only in a spirit of humility and respect before the creator and the work, or, or, or the catechism says. And this, this is a key, a key thing, I think, with evolutionary discussions when you're talking about evolution and understanding the Catholic uh, meaning of creation is, is that spirit of humility, that how, you know, as we, we, we uh, usually end up with, with, with conflict when people hold to beliefs 
or believe that they are, that what, what they have is, is uh, they're not open to new evidence, not interested in discussing things, um, and, and uh, are, are, are settled sort of in their ways. So that, that humility that is, I think, at the root of being a good scholar is something that you know, the catechism uh, talks about. So the fact that the loving God has made a world that's intelligible bodes well for scientific inquiry, right? It's a promise in the sense that scientific inquiry, if pursued diligently and in the spirit of humility and respect for the creator in his work, will reveal truths about the world that complement, right? Complement what has been revealed to us through scripture regarding God, creation, and mankind, that they're not gonna conflict, right? Um, you know, so for our purposes in this talk, it, it means an honest, competent investigation of the science of evolution done through the proper use of human reason, again, will lead us towards God rather than drag us down towards atheism. And that's a sort of perspective as a Catholic um, investigator in this science of evolution uh, that, that uh, sort of frames everything that, I, uh, that you should look at, right? And we should not be afraid to take on this task. So the more we understand evolution, it should not mean by, by the, 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 the further we get from God, right? But unfortunately, there's a lot of people under that impression that the more you look into evolution, the further one gets away from God. The more we connect ourselves to um, uh, these, uh, uh, we talked about you know, sort of human evolution, these, these, these pre-human hominids, the less divine we become, right? And, or, or the less we are connected to the, you know, a Catholic understanding of God. But our study of nature, though, I think reveals behind it, and, 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 and uh, Dr. Hayes was talking about this, 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 this there, it, there's a reason behind it, right? Um, and, and Albert Einstein, although not a theist, right, he was correct when he remarked that the study of nature revealed such a superior reason that everything significant which has arisen out of human thought and arrangement is in comparison with it, the merest empty reflection. There's a, little, a level of humility there, like recognizing that there's something greater than you out there that you're trying to comprehend as you look at evolutionary thought or look at uh, the creator. So, uh, you know, th this reflection that we see here, you know, imperfect as may, should spur us on towards worship of the real thing. It should orient us towards God, right? So yet what should one do when the truths of science seem to conflict with the truths of faith, right? This is where humility, careful study and analysis, hard work, as well as sober philosophical reflection come to bear fruit, hopefully, right? Now, before delving into sort of the science of evolution, things I wanna uh, talk about related to that, uh, it's useful to look um, at a couple of protagonists in the Galileo affair, right? And, and, and the reason I want to do this is because they uh, represent sort of attitudes that can hinder one's sort of investigation of science um, and, and others that uh, sort of reflect ways that we should approach this, right? So there's many examples of, of this in the Galileo affair that, of, of different perspectives that, that sort of lead to sort of more conflict than is necessary. But one of the most illustrative, though, and the one I'll start with, is to look at Pope Urban VIII's position on the heliocentric system, right? So Pope Urban thought that while Galileo's heliocentric model could be mathematically explained the movement of the heavens, he, also, he, he, did not, he did not think it necessarily described what actually occurred, right? He said, because God could have made the world appear as Galileo had described it, 
while in fact, the Earth sat immobile at the center. And so he sort of famously said, man cannot presume to know how the world really is since God could have brought about the same effects in ways unimagined by humans. It's not proper to restrict God's omnipotence. So with such a position, you can maintain the literal meaning of certain scriptural passages right, that imply the stationary Earth and simultaneously give credence to the ability of Galileo's heliocentric uh, system to accurately predict the movement of the heavens, right? But such a position really blow, uh, uh, sounds a death knell for science. So why pursue, continue to pursue scientific discovery if what we are investigating, what we're coming to, is simply deceiving us, right? It's not what really is, is, is out there, that God made it look one way, you know, the Earth is moving, even though the reality might be quite the opposite, right? Um, you know, this runs counter to the understanding that God has endowed humans uh, with a reason capable of discerning the order in his creation. If what we discern doesn't necessarily correspond to that, then God could have done it any other way and made it appear to us that it worked this way. So how does this relate to, to evolutionary studies, right? So when looking at like the genetic connection between humans and other primates, right, there's certain things that, that we find, right? And I'm gonna talk about one of those right now and then look at uh, how that might relate to this, right? So what you find if you look at humans and other primates, you find these things called process pseudogenes. Right? And what they are is uh, it's a, a, a gene that has been uh, transcribed to make a protein. Uh, but during that process, in some cases, the <coughs> RNA from that gene, after it's been processed, gets inserted back into the genome somewhere else. Right? So it's a pseudogene. It's no longer has the ability to be uh, transcribed or used. And this happens on occasion. If you look at the pseudogenes, the locations of them in different primates, you find that they're in a very specific pattern, right? They, they, if you look at, uh, say, the first of the enolase one there, right? It's in the exact same location in humans, chimps, and gorillas in the genome. It's in the exact same spots, but reinserted there. Um, and if you look at uh, how much the sequence is altered, you can get an idea of how old it is, right? And it's thought to be about uh, 11 million years old, right? If you look at the one on the bottom, which is 36 million years old, based on the amount of change it has, right? it's found in all these other primates as well. So what you see with these processed pseudogenes is that they're found in a pattern that's consistent with the idea that they occurred in an evolutionary ancestor and were inherited by these primates through common descent, right? So the most parsimonious explanation of this data, to look at this empirically, we'd say, well, this seems to suggest, right, that it's, it's good evidence that humans and other primates are related by common descent. This is exactly what you would expect if that's the case, right? Um, but, I mean, it's logically possible, right, and there are certain creationists who will make this, the argument that, you know, God just brought about the same effects in a way that, that, that's contrary to what is revealed by scientific discovery, what we, we see here that he could have just inserted these process pseudogenes in there and put them in at the exact same location at these places with the particular mutational pattern that makes it look that they are a certain age. Um, and therefore, this is 
just the way God has made it appear. This is not what actually happened, right? But such a view should be foreign to a Catholic understanding of the relationship between God and the only earthly creature made in his image. And if such a view is correct, really all of modern science tends to grind to a halt as none of its knowledge has any foundation, necessary foundation in reality. Right? From the Catholic perspective, right, it is necessary to wrestle with the science if one hopes to come to the truth of God's creation. Right? And that's what the Catechism stresses. Our human understanding, which shares in the light of the divine intellect, can understand what God tells us by means of his creation. So if God is telling us something through creation, if he's revealing himself in creation, we should be able to, in an honest way, look at that creation and be able to extract something from that rather than saying, well, we know it's deceiving us. This is what it might be telling us, but we know it's telling us. It must be telling us something else because it's not agreeing with what we think it should be telling us, right? Uh, I want to look at one other protagonist in the Galileo affair and sort of his attitude and, and, and perspective and how you sort of reconcile differences between sort of particularly Catholic interpretations of the Bible and scientific discovery, right? And this second protagonist is Cardinal Bellarmine, right? So in, juggling, in judging how to reconcile the scientific data from Galileo with the biblical text, right? This is, uh, uh, he, he had stated, to gather this. I say that if there were a true demonstration that the sun is at the center of the world and the earth is in the third heaven, and that the sun does not circle the earth, but the earth circles the sun, then one would have to proceed with great care and explain the scriptures that appear contrary and say rather that we do not understand them, then what is demonstrated is false. Right? But I will not believe that there is such a demonstration until it is shown to me. So there's two things here. First, you know, Bellman certainly recognizes that the truths of science and the truths of faith flow from the same truth, namely the triune God, right? And if that's the case, they, therefore they cannot contradict, right? And thus, any apparent conflict between the two is just that. It's, it's apparent. The conflict is either the result that we don't understand fully the science, right? Or we don't fully understand the meaning of the scriptural text, right? At the end, though, he says, you know, I will not believe that there is such a demonstration, the science, until it's shown to me, right? So what, this, this opens an interesting question. What is the level of scientific certainty, right, that Bellarmine is asking for or that anybody is asking for to know that, okay, maybe we need to reinterpret the scripture. What is that level of scientific certainty? And that in Galileo's time, there was a, a, quite a debate over that because the scientific certainty... Um, wasn't at, uh, at the level it is now, for example, right? <clears throat> what is the level that you need to proceed with great care then and say, okay, we need now to proceed with great care to figure out and explain scriptures that appear contrary, right? You could ask the question, was Bellarmine asking too much of Galileo before he would proceed with great caution and care? Um, the, 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 the idea, though, is that with scientific theories, they... They're, you're never going to have absolute certainty, right? So scientific theories are not established with certainty, right? But serve as reasonable explanations of the natural world, right? How, uh, and they're well supported by the evidence. So what is the level of evidence that you would need to say, well, okay, well, at this point, we have to reinterpret what the scripture, uh, to, we must somehow be not interpreting the scripture correctly, right? 
If certainty, though, is what one desires, scientific theories will always leave one lacking. And this is particularly true of evolutionary theories, given that evolution is largely a historical science. Right? It also has, there are experiments you can do, and I'll talk about those, but it has a large context of it, a portion of it is a historical science. Right? So because of this, making the case for uh, any particular theory of evolution or evolutionary change is more analogous to say to like a lawyer attempting to assemble circumstantial evidence to convict a murder suspect, right? So assuming there's no surveillance camera there filming and showing exactly what happened, right, at, at, at the crime scene, uh, the lawyer's left to assemble the evidence that you find at the crime scene, the suspect's house, the victim's house, and to try to assemble that into a coherent case that can establish the likelihood that the suspect did in fact commit the crime. Now the lawyer can also you know, supplement this historical data that he's trying to reconstruct with lab data on blood samples and uh, DNA you know, from, from hair and so forth. So there are, so, just like uh, evolutionary scientists can use DNA uh, comparisons and have lab experiments that they can do, um, supplement their historical data with. But even if the lawyer is able to assemble a range of converging evidence, absolute certainty is ruled out, right? The suspect could have been framed, or new evidence could emerge at a later date that could change the outcome of the trial. And this is why lawyers try to make a case beyond a, a, a reasonable doubt, right? And I would say evolutionary scientists face an all, a similar, but albeit more formidable task when it comes to establishing theories of evolutionary change, right? So, uh, you know, uh, a crime scene may be a few uh, weeks, uh, years old, right? The paleontologists are left to scour the fossil record of crime scene that has sustained billions of years of damage, right? Um, in order to make their case. Now, of course, there are lab experiments that you can do as well, and I'll talk about some of those later on in the talk, right? Developmental biologists can um, perform lab experiments where they manipulate uh, developmental patterns to sort of posit how one species could have emerged from another uh, group of, um, uh, evolutionary genetics, uh, geneticists can compare DNA sequences of the living and, and, and recently extinct forms of life. We can still get DNA. Um, but, you know, not, you know, most of the living organisms, you're not going to be able to do that. You're looking at a very small window. So, but with that, one can then attempt to construct a coherent narrative, right? But even despite all that effort, right, there are many aspects of evolutionary history that will likely remain forever masked behind the veil of history, right? This is just the reality of a science that relies upon interpretations of age-old rocks and DNA comparisons that only involve a small minority of the organisms that have ever been on the planet, as Dr. Hayes was pointing out in his talk, right? Now, to be clear, this is not, I'm not saying this to dismiss, and to be clear, evolutionary science in general or any specific evolutionary scientific hypothesis, right? No, rather, it's a cautionary tale of what science and evolutionary science can do for you and what it can't do, right? So if one were to criticize and dismiss an evolutionary picture of natural history because it's incomplete or tentative, right? I would say to be consistent, one has to throw out and dismiss almost all scientific theories, right? If one thinks evolution should be able to demonstrate the sweep of evolutionary history in a manner by which you can demonstrate two plus two is four, one is asking something that's actually beyond the scope of a scientific theory. Science is not mathematical certainty. The question is rather, given the evidence we now have at our disposal, right, what scenario or what evolutionary theory best makes sense of it? Right? And that's the question 
that a Catholic must be asking, right? Rather than what scenario is more akin to one's philosophical preferences or one's preferences for some biblical interpretation, but what is the most um, uh, rational, reasonable case given um, what we see from the science of evolution, right? Now, with this in mind, right, I'm going to switch, and I want to look at sort of three areas of evolution, evidence for evolution. Right? And uh, the reason I, I, I picked these three is because uh, you know, there's so many things you could talk about. I wanted to focus on things that um, relate to commonly held objections or commonly held misconceptions about what evolutionary theory can do and what it says. Right? Um, so the first issue has to do with a common claim that evolutionary processes of change, um, you often hear this, involve the loss of information or never the gain of new information. Right? And if this is true, then you, evolution has a huge problem. Right? So you look at a bacteria, it might have 4,000 genes. Modern humans have over 20,000. So there clearly has to be some increase in information, genetic information that's useful over time. How does that occur? Right, um, and 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 uh, what are the processes by which that occurs? Right, uh, without the ability to create new information, evolution is doomed f f to failure. You know, the theory does, doesn't work. Right, the problem though with the claim that you know evolution doesn't produce new information is, in a sense, flies in the face of the evidence. Right, and that's where we're saying, looking at the evidence, what does the evidence empirically tell me? That should then allow you to make, uh, as, as Dr. A said, that should inform your understanding of, of nature. Right? So there's a lot of evidence showing, uh, you know, through gene duplications and rearrangements, you can get new genes and so forth. But one of the things that's been really interesting, and, and this is something that has changed a lot of thinking on evolution is, is, in recent years, um, is that uh, there is now evidence that you can get new proteins de novo, right? right? So this is getting a, um, a new gene rather than modifying the existing ones. You take one gene, you make a co you know, some mechanism where you get a duplication and then it modifies and you've got now two copies of that gene, one that does sli something slightly different, right? It was thought that most of genes would, would emerge this way, right? Well, there is now evidence that you can get de novo emergence of genes. Right? So what does that mean? So if you look up here at this picture, what you see, um, that, that, uh, my poor diagram here, that brown line there is meant to be a, a chromosome. Right? And on that chromosome, there's three genes. Right? And the genes are in, in, in blue. And that little arrow there in, in, in front of them is the, what's called the promoter region. And that's where um, you can turn the gene on. Right? So this is uh, a cartoon of the RNA polymerase machine that's going to bind to that little arrow, that promoter, and turn the gene on to make the RNA, and then eventually can be used to make the protein. Right. So the genes are going to be used to make. You know, we have three genes that can each make a protein. Right? Now, in between the genes, you have this intergenic space there in brown, where there is not um, a gene currently. Right. And this space is used for a variety of different things. It's used for regulating, turning on and off genes. Uh, for structural reasons, to help protect genes, for helping to coil the, the, the genome in different ways. So there's a variety of different functions it has, but it's not where this polymerase is going to bind and turn on a gene. 
Right? Normally, the polymerase is just going to bind there at that uh, start site. Right? Now, what would happen, though, if the polymerase just binds here? Right? You would think, and it does this, because these things are, you know, there's just a stochastic nature of these things. They don't just, uh, you know, you get some sort of random binding of this polymerase. It will bind there, and it's going to read the DNA there. And you would say, it, it's not a gene, right? So what are the odds most likely it's going to read it? It's not going to be useful. It's going to be not be used to make a protein, right? Well, it turns out that on many occasions, it seems that just uh, randomly binding in this intergenic space you get new genes, de novo, that come out from non-coding regions. So rather than taking an existing gene and modifying it, you get a new gene appearing de novo, right? So what happens is, if you look at this uh, figure, you can see there in blue, that's where the, the genes are. So those are the functioning genes. Right? That's um, <clears throat> genes that are currently you know, in the organism being used for something, right? The green areas are where the polymerase binds, right? So you can see, we found out there's this background level of polymerase binding. It doesn't just bind at the genes, it's something that binds at these other sites, right? And when it does, it will make RNA, but usually it doesn't necessarily have a function, right? But you have this background binding. It's almost like you're exploring different places to bind, right? Now you also have in there, you can see these yellow lines, which are called open reading frames, right? And what that means is it has the sequence that if that region was transcribed into an RNA, it can then be actually made into a protein. Right? And so what you can have is two things. You can see that area on the left where that arrow is right now. You have, that's the place where the polymerase will bind, okay? And it's gonna make an RNA, but it's not gonna have an open reading frame. But if there's a mutation that generates an open reading frame there, you can have now the Polymerase bind, makes the RNA, and you actually make a protein, right? From a piece of DNA that previously wasn't a coding, de novo. You get a gene that merges out of this dead space, right? Likewise, on the other side, you have these uh, uh, open reading frames in the other circle that um, are not transcribed, right? So they're not being used, but they're not a normal gene. You have a mutation now where the polymerase, you know, can bind to this region. If the polymerase binds there, you're going to make an RNA, it has an open reading frame that can be used to make a protein, right? And you would think, on average, most of the time, it's not gonna be useful, right? This wouldn't be a major source of new genes because you're just transcribing DNA that is, doesn't have a specific sequence, hasn't evolved a sequence that's gonna be associated with a protein, right? But it turns out, as you do these type of uh, experiments and searches for this, you find, and this is from a recent paper, a review, you find that in organisms as diverse from yeast to humans, you find that you get new genes that actually have a function arising from these non-coding sequences. Right? So it's also you have a mechanism in place. Now, it's not that this is coming ex nihilo out of nothing, right? There has to be a mechanism, a cell in place that does transcription and translation and so forth. So you have to have the, 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 the machinery there for this. But there is a mechanism by which you can sample and produce new genes from scratch in a very quick manner and it, in a variety of different organisms. And this is you know, sort of in its infancy. Because you know, 20 years ago when I was in grad school, nobody ever thought this was possible. Nobody even looked for these things, right? So this is something that's sort of emerging, a new way in which natural processes can produce new information over time, right? right. 
Now, the second issue, uh, the second uh, piece of evidence that I want to talk about um, has to do with um, people's understanding of evolutionary theory and what they're actually rejecting. So, so I think many people have an outdated understanding of evolutionary theory, an understanding um, of, say, Darwinian theory that has evolved quite a bit since Darwin. Right? So for example, and, and there's many examples of this, but I'll just use one. So for example, Darwin believed in, in gradualism, right? that evolution proceeds by small, nearly imperceptible steps, steps such that should be you know, innumerable transition forms. Right? So this is a quote from, from, from The Origin, uh, one, a famous quote by Darwin. It said, may be said that natural selection is daily and hourly scrutinizing throughout the world every variation, even the slightest rejecting that which is bad, preserving and adding up all that is good, silently and incessantly, insensibly working. We see nothing of these slow changes in progress until the hand of time has marked the long lapse of ages. So if that's your view, that, that, that evolution proceeds by very, very small steps, you can barely perceive them, right? The idea was that, that, that you should see you know, uh, every sort of intermediary form in the fossil record. It, it, it should be, everything should be obviously connected, should be littered with that, right? And Darwin, for the most part, believed this. And he had some, some things where he thought that the pace might slow up and uh, slow down or speed up. But for the most part, he was a committed sort of gradualist. Um, but while he was, I say our, our current understanding of evolution has evolved quite significantly over the last 150 years, right? Very few scientists would hold such a similar gradualistic view that you can't have you know, uh, more significant transitions from A to B, rather than going from A to A1, A2, A3, A4, A5, A6, A7, you know, up to 100 to get to B, that you can have some jumps in a sense, right? Uh, bigger jumps, right? One key mechanism that seems to drive this more rapid change is what are called um, this, this theory of evo-devo, right? It's this evolutionary um, changes through developmental mutations. Right? So you have large-scale changes from relatively small mutations, right? Um, a lot of this work was initially done in the fruit fly, this is a common model organism. But what you have are genes that influence early development, right? So you think about an, an organism developing, one of the f most important things that you have to do is figure out what's gonna be the head, what's gonna be the tail, what's gonna be dorsal, what's gonna be ventral, what's gonna be right and left. Those things have to happen very, very early on during development. And that if you don't do that, you're not gonna build the, the, the proper form. Then you have to decide, okay, okay, what limb comes out here? What does that look like? How many digits? So you have all these decisions that are made early on in development. So if you have a mutation that affects early development, right, you can have a large-scale effect on the phenotype of the organism. Right? And one of the most famous ones of these, and one of the first ones sort of examined, was this one called ultobithorax in, uh, in fruit flies. And it's the, uh, you can see it says UBX there, that brown one. And you can see, if you look at the air where it's normally expressed, it's expressed in the third portion of the thorax, which is where you usually have just a set of legs coming off, right? But if you have a mutation in that, then that causes that second segment, the purple one up there, right, to be re re replicated in the third segment. So instead of getting you know, the, the segment one, two, and three of the thorax, you get basically segment one, two, and another two, right? And so you end up with a fly that looks like this. It's got two sets of wings, right? 
So you can see you've got you know, a small change genetically leading to a large phenotypic change. So there's no gradual intermediaries there. You go from A to B, right? So how, you know, how might this, this, this work, right? So you know, this isn't um, a particularly useful mutation for these flies to have, right? But there's some very interesting examples that you see where very small changes lead to major changes in the organism that are evolutionarily relevant, okay? So this is a paper that actually only came out three months ago, right? Um, in this paper, they found a gain of function mutation. What that is is a mutation, uh, it's a dominant mutation that causes a new function, right, to emerge. And right? it's a relatively complex change. And this mutation is only a single base pair mutation. So it's not a radical mutation. We have to rearrange the genome. So it's a single base pair mutation. And what happens is you go from a, uh, a fin, a fish fin, that has <coughs> these, um, uh, you can see here on this, th this side, that normally has these proximal radials and distal radials, and then the fins coming off them. So this, this cartoon here doesn't show the fins, uh, the, the ray fins, but over on that side, you can see those are the purple things going straight up, right? So that's the, this is a zebra fish, and that's the, the fin, right? The single change, the single mutation disrupts the development of the limb, or not disrupt, but alters the development of the limb. So you get something that looks like this now. You get two extra bones. You have the proximal radials, you have these intermedial radials, and then you have the distal ones, right? And the interesting thing is that they are fully integrated into the limb, right? So you see, those are bones. So in between bones, you, you, know, you, know, you have cartilage at the end of the bone, right? They have cartilage in the joints, right? They have attachments to muscles, right? So this is a, a fully functional limb, and those intermediate radials are the things that, you know, evolutionarily, as the, you know, in, in the tetrapod transition from uh, the, the emergence of tetrapods from fish to tetrapod transition, that eventually give rise to the the, the bones of the forelimb um, in the, the radius and ulna of your arm. Right? And so those two bones, and they, 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 there's this latent ability of one mutation to switch back and forth between those two fully integrated forms. So there is this ability to make major changes relatively rapidly evolutionarily. Right? It's not this, you know, certainly there could be gradual changes, but there are more substantive changes that can occur and be integrated. And the reason is because this is, uh, you know, it, it, it talks, it, it, this focuses on the, 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 the holistic nature of the organism, right? So the organism has the resources, in a sense, to go in multiple directions in the limb bud, depending on the environment, the genetic change, and so forth. So the, it, it's not, you know, as deterministic, in a sense, as we might have thought, right, um, in early development. Another example of this, uh, I don't want to stress this um, point too much, is... Uh, the, the, the transition from a four chamber, a three chambered heart to a four chambered heart, right? There's another uh, mutation, TBX5. It's another one of these genes that affect development. And I'll just point out very quickly, uh, normally in a four chambered heart, you have that expressed only in, you can see the expression is in blue. So all the way at the top and the far left, it's only expressed in the left ventricle. And that leads to a nice septum separating the right and left ventricle. And you can see in the wild type there, you can see LV and RV pointing out the uh, right and left ventricle, right? If you disrupt that single, that, that gene, that disruption, either have it not expressed or you can express it in both the right and left ventricles, 
you don't get a septum there, right? And what you get is one ventricle, third ventricle, you know, you, you get a three-chambered heart, right? And it seems like by changing where and how this is expressed, you can get different versions uh, of heart, the fourth-chambered heart, the three-chambered heart. Um, again, they're not, um, you know, a fully four-chambered, but it is uh, that you get a nice septum that starts to, to separate the right and left ventricles. So you have one gene that different changes in how it's turned on, its timing, its expression can lead to changes in, uh, significant changes in heart structure. Okay. Now, the last item to address I, I want to talk about is the experimental evidence that surrounds the origin of humans. Right. Uh, you know, how do you, re and, and this is one of the sticking points often for you know, Catholics or, or Christians when they look at evolution. How do you reconcile physical continuity evolutionary with this ontological leap to human uniqueness. And that's something that uh, Simon Conway Morris is going to address in the, in, in the next talk, right? But I want to talk just briefly about three pieces of evidence that anybody that wants to sort of investigate this is going to have to incorporate, right? Um, the first is just the fossil record, right? And so just as a brief overview, I don't want to get into this uh, too much, what does, the, what does the fossil record suggest, right? Now, anybody that wants to address human evolution has to explain the myriad intermediate hominid forms that are found in the temporal sequence that one would expect if the modern human body had indeed evolved from other hominids, right? So if you look back four million years ago in Africa, you find at least seven different species of the Australopithecines, right? <laughs> How do, uh, th these are upright posture, but relatively small brain. If you look back two million years ago in Africa, you see a myriad number of forms that are in our own genus Homo, right? And if you look at this picture here, I mean, I, I think two things to take away from it, right? One is that it's relatively, there's a lot of arrows that are dotted lines, there's question marks, I'm not really sure how all these fossil forms fit together, right? But the fact that you actually see them in a particular temporal sequence that would be consistent with what you would expect if humans evolved from other hominids is something that we have to take seriously if we want to um, integrate what science or creation is telling us. Right? Right, these are only, um, you know, there's not a neat link, A goes to B goes to C, like the picture I had on the first slide, where you see the, the ape gradually standing up. What you see is more of a rapid, uh, a, 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 a bushy tree, right? You have all these different hominins with different forms, like a radiation of forms. And over time, out of that emerges a hominid that looks like us. And more recently, you see multiple hominins that are very similar to us, Neanderthals, modern humans, Densovans, they have large brains, upright posture, and small jaws. Right? This, in addition to that, you have the archaeological record. Right? And this is a record that suggests that humans capable of symbolic rational thought have been around for at least 100,000 years. Right? So prior to 100,000 years ago, artifacts that have a clearly symbolic nature seem to be lacking in the archaeological record. Dr. Bagel talked about uh, one of these, uh, you know, he used this picture here from Blombos Cave, but you have others, right? You have this jewelry over here. We have these shells that are um, hold out at the, at the exact same point in all these different shells. 
Um, you have sort of advanced hafting techniques where you have a blades attached in a relatively complex way to um, uh, wooden spheres. So you have these things that you start to see 50 to 100,000 years ago, and you don't see them in just one place, right? You see them in different places in Africa and in the Levant, which suggests that modern humans must have emerged before that, before they spread out and started doing these in different places, right? More recently, you see even uh, uh, unambiguous signs, I think, of symbolic thought, right? particularly from 50,000 years to the present. So you see, in this case, you see you know, cave paintings, these three-dimensional, thought to be like maybe fertility gods or, or something like this, this, these representations here uh, on the right, these cave paintings that you see. And just like the artifacts you see from 50 to 100,000 years, you find these all over the globe, right? Initially, you just found these in Europe, right? Uh, but you now have found these in Africa. And just recently, those two on the, uh, the left, are found in Indonesia, and they're dated to about 43,000 years ago, those cave paintings. And then you can see there's like a pig there, uh, another uh, animal there, and then they also had sort of half animal, half human ones. There's almost like a religious deity or something like that. So there's clear evidence of this. So you have this, uh, any understanding of the emergence of humans must take into account and explain this deep history of humanity, a history that stretches back at least 100,000 years, and say, and spans multiple continents, okay? Uh, the final thing I want to mention, and we've already talked about, this has come up a couple times in the talk, is uh, modern genetics and the idea that when modern humans left Africa, they clearly encountered other hominid species. When modern humans left Africa, over the you know, past 100,000 years, there's probably been multiple ways, but they certainly had spread out roughly around 60 to 70,000 years ago. And they headed into the, the, the Levant. They encountered other hominid species, particularly Neanderthals. Right? And so that's sort of the, the boundary of the known boundary of the Neanderthal world there um, that modern humans would have encountered. Um, and it's not clear how much culture was transmitted between humans and Neanderthals, but DNA sequence data from both groups has revealed that genetic information was transferred. So in fact, roughly one to 3% of the DNA from non-African modern humans is thought to be of Neanderthal origin, right? Uh, so with these matings, most of the genes probably didn't maintained in the human gene pool, but some of them, probably ones that gave these early migrants some selective advantage, because Neanderthals had been here for about 200, at least 200,000 years before humans got there. So they must have had some sort of advantage, selective advantage, and those genes may have given the humans that left Africa an advantage of this new environment, right? This leads to intriguing questions, such as whether Neanderthals are rational beings and therefore should be actually part of our human family and thought of as sort of theologically human, or Neanderthals a distant relative that lacked that rational spark, but they're similar enough biologically to lead to successful matings. Now, while these questions are uh, maybe difficult to resolve or impossible to resolve, we cannot ignore the evolutionary evidence that strongly suggests overall that the human form has emerged through a complex biological process that involves the transitions through different types of hominids in Africa, right? The fossil intermediate forms, the genetic exchange with Neanderthals, the long history of symbolic artwork, jewelry, and complex tools, as well as the sharing of those genetic defects 
in specific genome locations I talked about earlier, can't easily be swept away without failing to understand what God tells us by means of his creation, as the catechism says, right? But it's equally true, though, and I want to caution, that evolutionary account of the emergence of man's body cannot be used to easily sweep away the Catholic understanding of the human person. To paraphrase Ben, I can't get rid of what we are, right? The evolutionary origin of the human body does not necessitate doing away with the belief that humans are created in the image and likeness of God, that they're a unity of body and spirit, or the reality of original sin, that we have fallen and turned from God. Now, I stress, there's nothing in the science of human evolution that I've talked about here that demands such a rejection. None of those things force you, force your hand. While the science of human evolution, it does point to the unity of the human race, it's not fine-grained enough to reveal the specifics regarding when the first humans emerged, those creatures that made the image and likeness, made in the image and likeness of God. While the archaeological record, as we talk about, can give us some guidance, we're pretty sure that probably they must have emerged, you know, 100,000 years ago at least, right? Uh, it, it's not going to give us certainty. And in fact, the exact details likely remain beyond the reach of history, right? This, this situation is summed up very, very nicely. I'm going to end with this by Father Andrew Pinsent in an article that, that, that he wrote about uh, original sin and um, uh, human evolution. He says, humans, when they awoke to the capacity for abstract thought and moral decisions, however this happened, received also the gift of grace and various other divine gifts to know and love God as stewards of creation. Yet they freely chose to reject the love of God and so lost these gifts, their nature being stripped bare of grace, their descendants who inherit human nature without these gifts suffer the effects mostly evident in a bent towards what is broadly acknowledged as evil. Whether, one, um, whether or not one chooses to accept this account on moral, philosophical, or theological grounds, what can at least be said is that we are not compelled to reject it on scientific grounds. Right? So clearly, you know, significant questions remain. Um, and we were talking about them last night on, this, on the panel. Uh, how did the first humans emerge as a single couple, the proverbial Adam and Eve, or did they emerge as a population? What does that mean for original sin? And as you talk about, a lot of those things are not, you know, are, are speculative. We're not, never going to be able to resolve those, right? Um, and they, but they are open questions that give scholars much to ponder, right? Uh, but there is nothing in the science of evolution that is inherently contradictory to the Catholic understanding of creation, to the Catholic understanding of man, or to the Catholic understanding of the creator. And that is why Benedict can say that here we are faced with two complementary rather than mutually exclusive realities. So, thank you.